This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Has the future delivered on the promises made in 1980s sci-fi films? I'd buy that for a dollar. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend and my co-host, Ray. How's your day going? Good. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, fantastic. Got no complaints. Good. Me too. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about um, whether or not the future has made good on the promises made by 1980s sci-fi movies. And a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with philosophy professor Dimitri Agatia about the philosophical questions raised by the technology in Blade Runner. Nice. Yeah, I think it's pretty nice. But before all that, let's get caught up on 80s news. So, speaking of Thanksgiving, I have an update on an 80s news story that you did just last week. And by the way, again, I want to commend you on the job you did. You told those three stories. I didn't know where you were going. (laughs) I realized watching the video back, I wasn't really listening when you told me what you were going to do, and I feel terrible. (laughs) And I, so I didn't seem as impressed as I was, but it was really good how you tied those old stories into milestones of the 1980s. Uh, I appreciate that, but uh, no accolades are necessary. I mean, I'm just doing my job here on the podcast. Wants to be appreciated. Um, But speaking of that, I had a, a friend and listener reached out to me about Turducken. Ooh. Which, as you know, I, I just, I don't know. It, it just strikes me as really... Um, a delicacy. <laughs> no, well, I was going to say troublesome uh, uh, for so many reasons. But uh, in any case, my friend and our listener, Jason writes, I heard the Idiots episode on Thanksgiving. I wanted to tell you that I've had turducken and it's delicious. In all fairness, the guy who made it is a great cook and he spent days making it. Well, there you go. Yes. That means turducken is probably really good, so... I think on one of these episodes coming up, we're going to have to actually eat a oh turducken. Boy. Okay. Well, now hold that thought, because he tells me about something maybe you want to try even more. Oh, okay. He goes on to say, uh, referring to the turducken, it was inspired by a Bedouin dish from Arabia. They have a wedding dish that my mom has once had when she was there as a kid. It's a boneless camel mm-hmm. stuffed with a goat. Oh, man. Stuffed with chickens. <laughs> stuffed with boiled eggs. Wow. It's buried in a fire pit for days and then dug up for a wedding feast. She said, it's amazing. Huh. So, all right, I'll raise you one turducken for whatever <laughs> camel. I don't know how you combine these words together. I was actually gonna, uh, hoping you would have said it was a chicken stuffed inside of a pig stuffed inside of a cow. Okay, because you have, do you have a word for that? I do not. Oh, but I thought that was going to be the joke. It's uh, no, cow pucking. Yeah, I was just. Cow picking. I was just hoping that's what it was, because I think that might be good, too. It's your favorite meats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The most I've, I guess the closest I've ever come to this is having a hamburger that was corned beef mixed with regular beef. That was really good. Well, if you've had pizza with bacon, mm. sausage, mm. and hamburger. I don't know that it's worth telling this story it's now. A, it's a trifecta. If you remember... I, I, <laughs> the pizza store, look, I, I now I have to have pizza very simply. You know, I, I was in college, my, my friend, my good friend and roommates at the time, we ordered a pizza. They ordered everything on it. I was fine with everything on it at the time. And everything on it included sausage, bacon, a number of other meats and things. Mm-hmm. When it arrived, we were eating it. First thing that happens, I bite into something hard. And I sort of, you know, spit, spit it out. And it's like a bone or cartilage. Oh, yeah. And already my stomach starts to get turned. So when I go to put the... We're eating basically out of the pizza box because we're, co- you know, college kids. Right. I don't have any silverware. I go to put the slice back down like in the lid of the box when I notice that underneath where I had taken my slice, there's a Band-Aid. <laughs> oh, no. So now I'm immediately are you, nauseous. Are you kidding me? No. Now, this has been... This has kept me from having a pizza with certain combinations of things on it for years, including bacon, sausage, ham... And I, I recently learned, because I, I was wondering about this, that apparently as humans, we're coded that if you have a bad experience with food, to continue to have these like strong feelings against them, it's a survival mechanism. You know, if someone, you eat a berry that might have almost killed you, then you'll avoid it in the future, that kind of thing. 
Huh, really? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Do you have any foods that you can't eat that will just turn your stomach? Mm, um, I don't like black olives, green olives, or pickles. Okay. I love all those things. Well, black olives. A, a lot of people do. Yeah. My family loves it, so they'll get it on pizza, and I sit there and just pick them off. Mm. Well, that's good. At least you're, you'll work around it. Uh, there's always a solution to the problem. Okay, in other news, our favorite, one of our favorite TV shows, Cobra Kai, word has come that season three has wrapped. On November 21st, actor uh, Jolo Mariduena tweeted season four. He said season four wrapped on Cobra Kai, but he really meant season three. He's the, he's the actor who plays Miguel, who had that terrible fall. Which reminds me of the episode when I said Miguel was the character uh, from Evil yes. Dead. It's Pablo. Oh, okay, Pablo. Miguel is the character from yes. Cobra Kai. I got the two confused. I see. Not because I'm a racist, <laughs> but because which I got is, confused. Which is what non-racists lead with. I'm not a racist, <laughs> but... Well, you had said that it would be bad if I confused it, well, so... <laughs> now you got two Latin actors mixed up <laughs> yeah. to prove that you're not a racist? It's okay, not my that's fault. fine, all right. I did the best I could. Well, the season three has wrapped, and I'm wondering if this means, we don't know, because even as the actors have teased about the next season, we don't know if Allie's returning. So I don't know if our efforts, which mm. didn't get very far in all honesty, to get Car- Claudia Wells cast as the new Allie in the event, Elizabeth Shue could it be cast. I don't know if we still have an opportunity. It might be too late now. I, I have no idea what they're doing at this point, but I'm sure it'll be awesome. So... The only thing we do know that they have told us is that season three will feature Daniel returning to Okinawa, which if you remember Karate Kid 2, he went there with Mr. Miyagi. Why would he go there? Well, the way they explain it is that season three is going to be about exploring the philosophies that led Daniel and Johnny to their different, or or the philosophies behind the different dojos. Um, I guess as a way of exploring, you know, sort of their beliefs and how they led them to where they are in life. And they don't want the show to get stale. Yeah. Which Which is a good call. Well, and like you said, you know, whatever they do, it's going to be good because our, our memories, our childhoods <laughs> seem to have been good, in good hands. Yeah, we're depending on them. Have so. they treated it? Yeah. They're doing good so far. In other news, uh, we've got a new Netflix documentary uh, that just came out. Do you remember the, the uh, documentary, The Toys That Made Us? We've had two seasons of it now. Nope. And uh, our guest, Chris Foreman, who was, among other things, a Transformers collector, his toy collection, one of his toy collections, or maybe multiple were featured somewhat on the, on the show during the end of the show they showed them. Um, these are shows that sh- featured toys that we grew up with, and they tell how they came to be. So if you haven't seen the toys that made us, check it out. It's really cool. They have a Star Wars one, Transformers. It's really wonderful. But these producers have now come out with a new show that just came out this past Friday, November 29th, The Movies That Made Us. And in the first season so far, I don't know if there's going to be other episodes, they've got... Um, Looks just looking quickly. Four. I thought they had five, but maybe I guess it's four. Four episodes. Each one features a different movie: Dirty Dancing, Home Alone, Ghostbusters, and Die Hard. Um, yes, actually, because I follow uh, Dueling Decades on oh, Facebook, okay. I saw that they did post about this with right. the picture of Ghostbusters, but I had no idea what they were talking about. So this actually clears it up for me. So yeah. Now I can watch it. And you know, just like uh, the toys that made us, you learn about something. You learn something new about something you think you've sort of exhausted all the resources of knowledge, including I'll share, share this one bit, a uh, little story for you that I learned was that. So in 1982, Columbia Pictures, um, which is the producers of Ghostbusters, that company was bought out by Coca-Cola, who thought they'd get into the movie business. Um, as a result, even though in a year later, in 1983, the CEO of Columbia, a man named Frank Price. He greenlit Ghostbusters. Coke was against it. They thought, how are you ever going to make money on a special <laughs> effects-driven comedy? Um, in fact, they were so unsupportive that when they found out they didn't, uh, have the, they didn't own the rights to Ghostbusters, the name, another company did. We could tell that story another time. Yeah. They, Coke didn't want to spend the money to buy the rights, which later turned out to be like a you know, pittance, I think. They didn't want to buy the rights. So I didn't know this. Ivan Reitman wound up shooting many of the scenes, having them say Ghostbusters and have the signs that say Ghostbusters, and also using the alternate name, which Coke suggested, Ghost Breakers. Yeah. Well, Coke should stick to uh, soft drinks, in my opinion. Yeah. Which I don't like, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And Ghost Breakers in the early 80s sounds like a whole other movie about dancing poltergeist. Word. Oh, that would have been hilarious <laughs> had they made Ghost Breakers. Yeah. 
about uh, breakdancing ghosts who are all over New York City? <laughs> There's still an opportunity for it. <laughs> we could set it in the 80s. Yeah. And I think that name is still available. What, what I thought was neat, though, there's sort of a neat little, um, I don't know, uh, sort of a Halloween ending to this story because Frank, Pry- uh, Frank uh, Price, who I said was the CEO of Columbia, because he had a fallout with Coke, he leaves Columbia to go to run Universal. It turns out Universal owns the name Ghostbusters. Huh. So he reaches out to Columbia and says, don't worry about it. I got you. You can use the name Ghostbusters. Um, so kind of a nice uh, turn of events. So, yeah, that affected everything for them moving forward because I don't think we would all be singing, who are you going to call, Ghost Breakers? <laughs> Word. <laughs> that, that would be weird. That was a hip-hop song. Yeah. Two things that are related to our topic today. One, we're in the future. Did you know that? We're living in the future I, now? I did know we were in the future. Do you want to explain why we're living in the future? Uh, I'm going to let you explain. Okay. It. So the year and month that Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, is set has come and passed now. So November, the original film said it was set in Los Angeles, opening titles, Los Angeles, November 2019. Yes. So we're officially beyond the date at the time at which the original Blade Runner was set. We're living in the future. Story number two, unless you, you have a comment about that? No. Another <laughs> current news that relates to 1980s. So a year ago, Tesla founder CEO and CEO Elon Musk made this, this comment. He made a, a promise, like he makes you know, a number of mm-hmm. wacky promises about the things he's going to deliver on in the future. Um, but in, in an interview with Vox's Recode, he said that he was working on a pickup truck that would be, quote, like realistic, f- really futuristic cyber, sorry, like a really futuristic, like cyberpunk Blade Runner pickup truck. Is it that silly little thing with the cat memes? Yes, it's that <laughs> doorstop. And the, the greatest thing about the doorstop is that, did you see this? So one of the claims to fame was, you know, it could t- two, two things. One, it could take a punch, so they took a sledgehammer to it, no dent. Second thing, the glass is bulletproof. So what did they do? They picked up like a ball bearing, mm-hmm. and someone tossed it at the window. Okay. Yeah, they did all this with the Nokia phones years ago, didn't they? Uh, I don't remember. It's like unbreakable. It's like a brick. Oh, did they break the Nokia phone? I don't think anyone's ever broke one. Okay, did you see what happened with Tesla's car? Did it break? Yeah. They threw, oh, no. <laughs> they threw a ball bearing at the window, and the window shattered. Ah, geez. So Elon's, Elon Musk is standing there, his assistant, or probably not assistant, he's probably some high-level ranking officer, says, right, let's give it another shot. Takes another one, throws it at a different window, that one shatters too. <laughs> so there you go. So uh, this ties nicely into what we're going to talk about today, is whether or not the promises of the past have... The technology promised to us in the past has arrived or not. Hmm. And as far as I know, that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. So a little bit later, we're going to be talking with philosophy professor Demetria Gazia about the philosophical implications of some of the technology that's introduced in Blade Runner. We'll get more into it later when she joins us. For now, we're going to talk about movies that were released in the 1980s, but set in the future, and whether or not the technology they promised was delivered. In considering this, I had to research when these many of these films were set. Mm-hmm. Some of them, it's explicit. Others, you may not know unless you did some additional research. I, do you mean the um, the strategy they mostly went with was is in the future after an <laughs> apocalyptic <laughs> event? Yes, it's just yes, vague. So for fun, and this might be a total disaster, <laughs> which we could say about the whole, the whole concept of our podcast, I'd probably said that before we started recording anything, is I'm going to hand you the names of four 1980s films that are all set in the future. All right. I'm going to see if you could put them in chronological order based on the future elements. Oh, when they happen in the future? Yes. So some, of them, right. have, some of them might have present moments. Okay. Um, but okay. When they, the, the, the farthest they go in the future. He has handed me Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Alien Nation... Blade Runner, and The Terminator. Yeah. Now, once again, there's some that are trickier Oof. than others. So, let's see. Hmm. I put Blade Runner down as first. All right. Blade Runner is, you know, we just talked about that. It's set in, mm-hmm. in 2019. We, I got Alien Nation next. See, now, I don't fault you for this. Alien Nation, even though it came out in, like, the mid to late 80s, I think mm-hmm. it was, like, 87 or 88. Yeah. It was set in 1991. Really? Isn't that crazy? That makes no sense. Well, and, and, and four years, or three or four years later, they expected to be an alien arrival and a whole <laughs> yeah. alien community developed. That's like uh, us making a movie right now. Yeah. <laughs> Set in 2021 or something. And aliens have been here for four years. <laughs> so it doesn't follow the timeline at all. I'm trying to remember if at the time I saw it, I thought, what do they know that we don't? 
in three or four years, is there going to be aliens? <laughs> it is an awesome movie, though. So because it is easy to put off a lot of these things as, eh, we don't have to worry about. It. That's the way in the future. Yeah, well, that's usually how we all look at it. All these futuristic movies is like, my grandkids will have to worry about the aliens with the space guns. But yeah, then I put Bill and Ted, and then the Terminator. So okay, so looks uh, like I messed this up. Well, again, you know what? Again, so alienation now is another tricky one. Um, Bill and Ted, the furthest they travel in the future is 20, I'm sorry, 2688 is when they talk about, I guess that's where uh, Clarence uh, Clemens lives. Oh, okay. So that's 2688. Wow. And the Terminator, the Terminator is traveling back from 2029. So I got this one all screwed up here. Yeah, that's a tough one, though. Hmm. Sounds like you set me up for failure. On yes, this whole as usual. Thing. So, yeah. what's interesting, though, I guess, is in uh, there's a lot. Of, I don't know, Denny. This is interesting to anybody. <laughs> but three of the films were set. The future was set in 2019. So, this idea that you know, as kids, they thought, "I'm not going to have to worry about uh, run amok androids killing humans. That's someone else's problem." We're here now in that time period, and we were right. Yeah, you're right. Okay. You're right, but there are some things that Blade Runner did get right that maybe we should be concerned about. In any case, three of the films are set in 20, 2019, Blade Runner, Running Man, and, oh, I, one I didn't mention, Akira. Did you see the film Akira? No. Okay, I didn't think so. So that's a uh, Japanese anime. That's um, very popular and well-known, but that was set in 2019 as well, but I figured you hadn't seen that. Oh, you know what? One, one movie I left out of this was Robocop, because mm-hmm. apparently in the movies, they don't ever say when the movie is set. And I think Paul Verhoeven, who made RoboCop, has always been, and then I think even the screenwriter has been always sort of mysterious about it. But apparently in the novelization or books about RoboCop, they talk about it being set in 2043. Hmm. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> if you don't know why he said that, <laughs> you need to catch up on RoboCop. Okay. So in any case, so here's some films in no particular order. Uh, and some technology is just going to leap out to you as soon as mm-hmm. I mention the film. So Back to the Future. We mentioned yes. it's set in 2015. A number of things were promised. Um, let's focus on, and a lot of these films have some comp things in common. So we'll try to you know, yeah. cover them, I guess, as best we can. Hoverboards. Yeah, we, we have hoverboards, but they are not what we were promised in the movie. They're not hovering, yeah. <laughs> and they're not boards. And yeah. they're impossible to ride. Yeah. So, yeah. So a few years ago, you remember remember that Funnier Die video where they were trying to psych everyone out that they were real? Yeah. Christopher Lloyd was even, and Tony Hawk were, you know, roped into this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, a year later, Lexus had a hoverboard that they had uh, in a commercial. They don't, they never intended to release it, you know, market it commercially to, to, to the public, but it really hovers. But what we didn't know is in order for it to work, the commercial set at a skate park they built that has a special m- magnetic track under it yeah. that you have to stay on. Um, there are some companies, though, that are working on real and selling hoverboards. Um, two, in particular, leap out. A company called Hendo is working on one which also uses magnets. Um, you'd also need a special metallic surface or some kind of surface that would, uh, you know, r- allow the magnetism to hover you. Um, but you'd have to spend $10,000 just for the board. And then I think, based on what I was reading, several thousand dollars to lay out some kind of metallic, you know, special track. Yeah, Johnny Depp and uh, Tom Cruise will love riding those by themselves because they're the only ones who can afford them. <laughs> They'll high-five. They'll do one of those windmill high-fives that Tom Cruise mm-hmm. is famous for. Um, there's also, though, another one, Arca board, that uses fans instead. So I think they have the one board has 36 small fans in it that create the, you know, the hovering, the levitation, instead of magnets. Hmm. But you need to spend $15,000 on that one and another $4,500 for the, the quick-charging station. Huh. Well, I guess only Johnny Depp is crazy <laughs> enough to buy that one. I can see him as a pirate riding around in that. <laughs> yeah. Are, are we only doing what they got right or what they got wrong? No, we can get what they got wrong, too. Because um, uh, Back to the Future, um, they have that big giant uh, billboard where the shark comes out. Oh, yes. Which we don't have those yet. Yeah. We don't have 3D. Hologram. Hologram billboard. billboard yet. Yeah. Although, and we'll talk about this, I think, in a few movies, they do that pervasiveness of advertising, you know, it did come true, but you're mm-hmm. right. And, and yeah, the hologram looked pretty terrible. Yeah. But he was scared shitless of that thing. <laughs> yeah. And the joke is, he says, the shark still looks <laughs> fake, even though he was scared. All right. Let's talk about The Running Man. Again, this is another mm-hmm. film that's set in 2019. Yeah. You're, once again, you're living in a world with uh, limited resources, so they just take criminals and people enjoy watching them go on a game show to get murdered. So, and the but the, uh, yeah, the the gist of it is is that if they win, they get to go live on a 
Tropical ah. Island. Oh, but that turns out to be fake, a lie. Correct. Yes. About Spoiler that. alert. Oh, dang it. But yeah, but the competition winds up, so it's a deadly competition, like yes. you said. Yeah, and it also has the kissing bandit, uh, Richard Dawson, in it. Oh, yeah. Did he kiss anybody in this one? He did. I don't remember if he kissed anybody in this one, no. but if you go back to Family Feud. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I recently watched him, uh, the episode with uh, the Duke boys and the Waltons playing against each other. Is uh, Really? Okay. And uh, he's kissing every woman on set. There's even like a 12-year-old he kisses on that mm. one. And it's creepy watching it now. So he gets the thumbs down. <laughs> but then he redeems himself with huh. the running man. Redeems himself? Well, he plays yeah. a bad guy in the running yeah, man. But he doesn't... Uh, Kiss anybody. Kiss anybody. Right. So no one I gets remember. her P's simplex 10 or whatever. <laughs> whatever Axel Foley says he's got. Um, but so the, the, this idea of the prison show, I think, was one of the early examples we saw of reality TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this, in, in, the, in the very least, what the movie anticipated was this, you know, much watch reality TV where people would be pitted, maybe not violently so, but, you know, animalistic in an animalistic way, in a hostile way, you know, with your survivor and big brother. Mm-hmm. And like Big Brother, you know, you watched what twenty four seven, I guess. Uh, even uh, American Gladiator, American Gladiator, sure. where they are shooting you with things and trying to hurt you. Yeah, right. Or if you've ever seen uh, Extreme Elimination Challenge, yeah, I've heard of that. I think I've seen that. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, go go watch. Is it. that like the it's one where funny. is that with the water below and you're jumping from crazy platforms? Uh, and yeah, it's the. Um, Started in Japan. Yeah, it's in Japan. It's uh, Tashi's Castle or something like okay, that. Okay, yeah, i seen that. One. But they dub it over in English and just change it around. It's yeah. hilarious. So I think Running Man, you know, gave birth to that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it understood that that's where we were going to get. And, and unfortunately, we also do have some sports that do have violent endings. We do have boxers that perish, you know, and MMA fighters. Um, I don't know. That, I'm sure people tune in for the violence. And unfortunately, sometimes people... I have a way of <laughs> phrase giving me the I'm thumbs up. The thumbs up for violent endings and sporting events. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just when I think I make it dark, you approve you approve the death of it. Okay. Uh, so uh moving on to another film, Terminator. So Terminator was set in twenty twenty well, sorry. Terminator was set when it came out, so I guess what, eighty four? Something like that, yeah. Um, but it does, the Terminator and Kyle Reese come from a future, 2029. And one of the, we get a couple of glimpses of things in the future. Of course, we get the Terminator himself who comes back and mm-hmm. there's a future is filled with Terminators. Um, unlike what we'll be talking about um, later with the philosophy professor where we've got androids that are genetically engineered and, uh, you know, are made of organic material, Terminators were cyborgs. Essentially a robot, when you think of a robot, straight up sci-fi robot underneath something that's organic. Yeah, I'm going to go on record right now and say that the Terminator theory is the one that takes down humankind. This is the one that gets us. So everybody, stop buying the toasters that are smart and everything else, because <laughs> this is what's going to take us down, is the Terminator theory. So, so right, what they call it, the singularity, when suddenly mm-hmm. uh, all this artificial intelligence is become sentient, self-aware, and wants they to can, survive. Yeah, and they can fix themselves. Mm-hmm. and reprogram themselves, and they don't need humans anymore. That's when they're going to take us out. You're going to get your Skynet scenario. You're going to get maximum overdrive. Well, maximum overdrive is because of some spaceship or something like that. The robots are going to take over. Um, so do we, we don't have cyborgs necessarily. Now we've got robots. We don't have human-robot hybrids. The closest I could think is was I found out that we do have some advancements in artificial limbs that are going to rely on artificial intelligence, to make them more functional. Um, limbs, like arms, that will be able to be controlled by thought to some extent, and sensors and fingers that, based on artificial intelligence, will react more like our hands do. Because our bodies do things that we don't even have to think, you know? When you pick up a cup, I don't have to think, don't, don't break it with yes. my superhuman strength. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that's the first step. <laughs> you pair that with Alexa, we're screwed! <laughs> yep. They're going to be ripping out limbs. All right, how about RoboCop? So we talked about... Um, RoboCop, and again, some of these things bleed over. So, what I'm going to say about RoboCop, this technological advance is true of the Terminator, and I guess you could also say of the Predator to some uh, some extent. Is in RoboCop, um, Officer Murphy, the visor that he's looking through presents him with a reality in a way that we don't see. So he's able to mm-hmm. access all different kinds of information about who people are and what you know, what's what, and assess threats. Terminator does a similar thing too. Uh, in, yeah. in Terminator 2, unfortunately, which is a 90s film, 
he does have that line where um, Ed, Ed, Edward Furlong's character says to him, they turn off all the lights and it's dark on the road. He says, you know, how can you see anything? Or can you see anything? And he says, I see everything. Yeah. And then you see his view where it's, you know, yeah. all the scope. So do we ha- have we ever come close to having something like that, do you think? Um, well, we have night vision goggles. Sure. And I'm sure because, you know, I'm the United States military is super smart, so I'm sure they have it. Yeah, and, right. And often, as you know, a lot of civilian things come from the military. Yes. Like GPS, the military had that long before we had it on our phones. Yeah, and they also get that stuff from uh, Area 51. Right. And they do the whole re-engineering or reverse engineering thing. Yes. So they, they got all this stuff. Uh, they got it. I wonder if people catch how I'm sarcastically agreeing with you. I wonder if people catch how sarcastic I am when I say it in the first place. (laughs) They're probably not. But, you know, so what comes to mind to me is also um, Google. Remember the short-lived Google glasses? Yeah. So that was kind of the idea, that you could be able to look at something, figure out the Google Glass would tell you where you could buy it, and then you could make the purchase, or you could be walking down the street and see directions where to turn, you know, because Google Maps would be tied to the Google Glass. Um, there's still some, or even the augmented reality games we have, like, you know, Pokemon Go, and my daughter plays a Harry Potter one like that, where you can look through your phone and see something else in this, in this world. Um, also, I, I did see that Microsoft has, unlike the Google Glass, Microsoft still has a product, it's mostly for industrial purposes, but it's called the HoloLens, which is that same idea. You, you put a, this lens on, and, or these goggles on, and you can see the world in a way that we don't see. Augmented reality to help you do a job. Hmm. You know, and they had, so I didn't look at the video, but they had examples of even seeing like surgeons where they could, you know, practice messing up so they don't <laughs> screw up a surgery. No, I think it was at the same time, like where they're looking at, a, you know, a body, an organ or about to do some kind of medical thing and it huh. enhances what they see, you know. Uh, who huh. knows? You know, oftentimes, just like when you go to Burger King and that picture, that burger looks great, <laughs> and then you get the burger. That was, I was just about to say that, is how do my organs compare to everyone else's <laughs> organs, and how are they going to match up on their screen? Wait a second. Are you the Burger King picture, or are you the Burger King that's delivered? No, I'm the, the Burger King that comes <laughs> out to you. <laughs> um, so, who knows? You know, what was, I saw advertised might not have been helpful. <laughs> Um, okay, so I did sort of lead up to this because we're going to be talking about Blade Runner with the philosophy professor in just a few minutes here. Um, so Blade Runner promised something that also Back to the Future 2 promised us, flying cars. Yes. We don't see them flying around right now. No, we don't. What you might be surprised to learn, because I was, is that companies are actually working on flying cars, including Uber and Boeing and a number of others um, in, in another company called Lilium. Um, now, Uber and Boeing said that they're going to have something by 2023 for taxi purposes. Mm-hmm. Everything else I read, though, says that this is not going to happen. I am absolutely shocked that we don't have flying cars. Hmm. If they could invent the car right. in, like, what, 1900? Yeah, we so can't, for 100 we years We can't get a flying car with the technology we have today. This is ludicrous. This is lazy. I don't understand what these people are doing. <laughs> I should be able to fly to work in 15 minutes in my car (laughs) and not have to drive 45 minutes to get to work. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. Well, do you think, though, you know, they were talking about some of the applications of it would be like in high traffic areas like Los Angeles, you'd you'd be able to have some flying vehicles or or some that are cars that can turn into flying vehicles to avoid congestion. But Mm -hmm. wouldn't then you just have like sky full of cars and then the congestion is just in the air? I mean, you've got more dimensions to operate out, I guess. Well, it would balance out, though. Split it up like half on the ground. So, half yeah, on. so half's on the ground, half's in the sky. So now the time actually is reduced. But actually mm. in the sky then, you could have um, multiple lanes. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems so dangerous. It, it seems dangerous, yes, because, you know, our little tiny minds can't grasp the concept of multiple lanes in the sky because we're used to driving on the road. Yeah. But I say, make it happen. I want to get to work in 15 minutes. So I will make this, okay, <laughs> again, mm. I always try to avoid ending on a bad note, and then I realize the way I s- s- just sort of say things, I wind up on with the last things left or bad things. Huh. But t- talking about some of the things that um, uh, Blade Runner got right that aren't so great, but they did get it right. One is the, in Blade Runner, in the world of Blade Runner, animals seem to be largely extinct. And unfortunately, we see more and more populations of animals. Oh, he goes rolling his eyes. I'm rolling my eyes at that one because there's plenty of animals left. Yeah, but they're going. They're going. We're all going. We didn't have to. Okay. okay. We don't have to go as fast as, you know, yeah, we well, are. But they did get right digital billboards. 
That's true. The pervasiveness of advertising. Which is much more important than whether the animals are still alive or not, because now you can advertise your Burger King coupons or whatever right there on the... You could advertise a really looking good burger, and then you yeah. can get Ray delivered to you. Yeah, the Ray I burger. show up like... <laughs> <laughs> with the, the bun is way bigger than the meat. What happened? I, I would disagree with that statement. So then I'll avoid my highly politicized uh, last thing. You the other a, thing they got right? You got a political thing on well, there? Well, it's not. It doesn't happen. Look, you're making it political with the animals, I think. Hmm. The other thing they got right is our, the environment in the future sucks so much that oh, people are going to another planet. In the, w- among those well, advertisements well, uh, are saying, go to the paradise of off-world colonies. And you've seen in, in Blade Runner, it never stops raining. It's just cloudy well, once, and dark. Once again, we all know we're no matter what happens with global warming or whatever, we're eventually going to use up what we have here and have to go to Mars or another planet. We don't have to, though, Raymond. Yeah, we do. No, we don't. We're going to use it up. There's too many people. Well, there's, there's types of resources we could use that are renewable resources. Yeah, Mars. No, you wait a second. You think it would cost less money and to be go to Mars? easier technologically to, to fly to Mars, I do. Ox, develop oxygen somehow, colonize it, than to figure out how to stay alive on this planet? Yes, I think it'll be easier to go to Mars and make Mars another planet that we can live on. It seems more exciting, I'll grant you that, but unless you see Total Recall, then it seems like a, you know, a hellscape. If you step outside and your helmet comes, you've got a crack in your helmet, <laughs> your eyeballs are going to pop out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll leave it at that. Yes. Um, so, you know, I don't know whether the future or not has delivered so far. Mixed results. Mm. But, um, you know, so far at least it's not a, you know, rainy hellscape. So, yeah, so we got that going for us. There you go. Which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't know why he said that, you got even more 80s news to watch. I'm not even going to tell you which one that's from. In any case, we'll be back in just a moment with Professor Demetria Gazia to talk about the philosophical implications of Android, so what it means for us to be human in the film Blade Runner. Our guest today is a professor and the chair of philosophy at the University of Akron in Akron, Ohio. While her research focuses primarily on color perception, she has published a number of academic articles on subjects including time perception, cognitive penetration, and fictionalism. In addition, she is a research affiliate at the Brogard Lab for Multisensory Research at the University of Miami. She's also been honored with a number of teaching awards, making her the perfect person to explain philosophy to a couple of idiots. Please welcome to the show, Demetria Gazia. Thank you. Thank it's, you for having me. Thank you for coming. I so so very much appreciate it. And you know, it's it, you know, we were talking before the show. You were teaching me how Ridley Scott didn't even realize how I guess philosophical and layered his movie was. But you know, as a philosophy professor and even as a layperson, it's immediately smacks of so many common statements that the sh- the movie's making that I thought it was you know important for us to speak to somebody like yourself about uh, some of the deeper meanings in, in the movie. And I guess as a jumping off point, um, I think the easiest sort of thing to sort of anchor everything to is this idea that a question raised by the movie, the big sort of overarching question is, or one of them is, what makes a human a human? And the movie touches upon this in many different ways. But I think we can rule out a couple things. You know, being a philosophy professor, you'll appreciate we're going to, I think, just sort of, you know, uh, suggest there's certain things we don't even have to analyze. Right at the beginning of the movie, they tell us that the the uh, androids, which are called replicants, are equal in strength and um, I think agility. Ag- agility. So, okay, that's not going to help us at all. And instead, as the movie goes on, we learn there's some other things that uh, are more important. You know, I say all that, I want to take a step back. Is it correct that Enlightenment philosophers were concerned about distinguishing humans from uh, machines well before science fiction was, was popular? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, René Descartes, the 17th century uh, philosopher, uh, he's also a mathematician and scientist. Uh, he uh, basically, in, in fact, one of the lines in the movie in, the, in uh, Blade Runner is, uh, I think, therefore I am. Right. Which is uh, one of the most famous lines that I don't know if anybody knows what it means, but it's right. repeated quite often. Yeah. Do you know, did you've heard that phrase before? Uh, yeah, I've heard that phrase quite a bit. So anybody, you don't even realize you know philosophy, you know, you, you didn't realize you knew philosophy, you knew philosophy. 
Right. Yeah, I think the Scarecrow said that in The Wizard of Oz at some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yes. To some extent, yeah. I, I've seen it on uh, um, license plates and bumper stickers. It's like it's everywhere. So, so this is interesting, actually, because there are two things that are going on in the movie, I think, in terms of the, if, you th- if you're thinking about it in Cartesian terms from Descartes' philosophies, sure. uh, how, how the arguments that Descartes is making. So um, one argument that Descartes makes that's very famous is the I think, therefore I am. And so this is an argument for what philosophers call substance dualism. And so basically for Descartes, we have a physical substance, our bodies, and then we have a mental substance that's commonly known as the soul. Right. Uh, and so uh, while our bodies die, our souls continue to exist. And this is also a theological sort of idea. And, you know, lots of people think that there's an afterlife, but your body is not there. Or the Egyptians thought that, you know, maybe your body you needed, so, right. so we had to preserve it so that the soul can come back. And so, so it's not a new idea at all. It's just that Descartes provided one of the most interesting philosophical arguments. It's not a very good argument, but it's a very ingenious argument. How do I know that I exist? So... Um, what am I? In other words, how, how do I know what am I? How do I know that I exist? And so he thought that, uh, look, you know, um, I could be in a simulation, so to speak. Right. Uh, I mean, the, those things didn't exist, but the, the, the phrase brain in a vat was the common sure. phrase back in the day. But today you can think of, uh, you know, the Matrix or movies like that where you are in a simulation. And so what happens in those cases is that you have the exact same uh, sensations, the exact same behaviors, the exact same everything, but you're actually not um, doing any of these things and you're, you're just a simulation by definition, right? So the flaw in this is that y- you understand you exist, but it doesn't really tell you about what existence you have. Well, you don't even know if you exist because if someone is simulating you... Then by you know you're you're not real you're a simulation right I guess but then what's so, what's real right so <laughs> that's uh, similar to the Total Recall uh, movie with Arnold uh, he doesn't know which character he actually is in real life what's a dream what's yeah what's and and story? that relates to to Locke uh, and and uh, John Locke you're and jumping another, ahead to Locke right, right. And another right. 17th century Slow philosophy <laughs> we're still on Descartes you were saying there's two things right so so we'll come back to Locke yes, I that's promise. fine put a pin, put a pin in it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so Descartes uh, thought that you know how do I know that I'm not in a simulation like in the Matrix for example how how do I know that I don't exist in this uh, environment that I'm not real but you know things are happening and I think things are happening and I think I'm doing things and I think things are happening to me, but I, I'm sitting, sitting in a cocoon and nothing really happens to me. I'm just connected to a supercomputer that generates right. all these things. Right. And so Descartes thought, well, uh, and he, he termed the supercomputer because there was no supercomputer back in the day, uh, the, uh, evil demon. Right. And so you may not know what kind of body you have, uh, because the evil demon is deceiving you into thinking you have this body when, in fact, you have another body. Uh, you may not know where you are because, again, the evil demon can construct an environment that's completely different from the environment you're in. Uh, but you do know that you're thinking, even though you may not know whether your thoughts are correct, true or false, or you don't know if they're your thoughts or the evil demon is making you think these things, but you do know that you're engaging in the activity of thinking. And in order for you to engage in the activity of thinking, you have to exist. So I think, therefore, I am, is an argument for I exist as a mental substance that's separate from my body then I know that I exist as a mental substance. And in fact, Press in the movie right. says I, that, right? right. Yes, yeah, so, uh. so, so Sebastian. But, you know, so, and I get what I'm getting from you, though, is in the context of Blade Runner, there honor this idea of being able to distinguish, I guess, a, define or understand what a human is versus an, in a replicant, the Descartes test would have been helpful because, you know, Press and the other Nexus 6 replicants would have passed those tests. Absolutely, yeah. So, so it's not that it wouldn't be relevant, uh, someone like Descartes would have to admit, (laughs) according to his own argument, uh, they would have to say, well, they can think. And if they can think... Uh, they're human because right. only humans can use reason to to behave in a certain way. But today we would say that's uh, that doesn't do it because uh, you know maybe my Siri or my Alexa thinks, but right? It wouldn't. I wouldn't. Ex- no one would expect I'd give it the same rights as a human. Right. Well, I mean, again, if it turns out that uh, Alexa can think, and it's a it's a type of machine that is able to exhibit all these characteristics that humans can 
then the question is, why shouldn't she have rights, right? I mean, it's the same thing. Uh, I mean, we did the same things with animals. So, for example, uh, a lot of philosophers in the 17th and 18th century argued that, uh, uh, you know, animals don't have the capacity to feel. And that's one of the uh, uh, characteristics that makes something, someone a human in uh, the Blade Runner. So they, the humans presumably have the capacity to have empathy. And so right. you can measure it by asking them these sorts of questions. Uh, of course, you're measuring their physiology. So it's a bit tricky because, yeah. you know, presumably so, you can trick the physiology to map. You know, you can have the behavioral markers without the actual yeah. so empathy. F- so for folks who don't remember, in Blade Runner, they had this thing called the Voigt-Kampf test, which I don't know who that was named after. Um, I'm sure there's some clever reason they called it Voigt-Kampf, but it's a series of questions designed to measure your empathy by uh, involuntary physiological responses to different scenarios. And what I thought was interesting, you know, to your point about animals, and maybe this is related, even though really Scott didn't mean it, is that the questions are most often about animals, which we understand in this future are mostly extinct. So they're asking questions of presumably humans or replicants, they're not sure, about animals that aren't extinct and measuring their empathy with regard to animals, not even humans. Uh Right. I mean, it, it, to me, it sounded really strange that, I mean, uh, I didn't read the book, but the, the book is a little different, I take it. But right. in, in both the book and the movie, the uh, idea is the same, where uh, this is supposed to be a post-apocalyptic sort of world. Sure. And so the first scene in the movie, in both the new Blade Runner and the old Blade Runner, um, this it's it's just like a non-empathetic, sterile world where you see, you know, the chemicals coming out of the factories and every building is made out of metal or some really harsh sort of uh, right. uh, material. And there there's nothing empathetic about the environment whatsoever. And even the interactions in Blade Runner with people. You know, it's interesting that you say about the opening, though, if you remember, they have that, and then they cut to an eye where you see the reflection of this world in the eye. Right. You know, where you see the flames reflected in the eye. Yeah, actually, and you see that at the end as well. Right. Right. And so it's not quite, yeah, there, um, it's not clear whose eye this is. Like, it's not clear that it's Decker's, but it could be one of the replicants. And if it is one of the replicants, then that relates to uh, this idea of the the way that philosophers now talk about consciousness. And they talk about consciousness in the sense that um, you it's not the behavioral markers or the correlations that happen between what happens in your brain and uh, the experiences you have, uh, but the experiences you have per se. So, for example, uh, the redness that you see. Uh, the blueness that you see right. or the the scene, you know, the the beautiful colors in the sunset that you see. Uh, all, I mean, these are visual examples, but you can have auditory examples. Like you hear the Beethoven's uh, symphony or you hear like your favorite band, right? And you get excited about because it has a certain feel, right? So nowadays when philosophers talk about consciousness, they're not really focusing necessarily on thinking, even though that's part of it, but they're focusing on can you have what they call phenomenal or qualitative uh, experiences. So the, these experiences have a certain feel. The blueness feels different than the redness. And the, uh, Beethoven's music sounds very different than System of a Down, right? It's like, <laughs> it's, it, there's a different feel there, right? You didn't expect a philosophy yeah. professor to bring up System of a Down. <laughs> I didn't. But it does bring me to a question I, with the replicants. Yep. All their memories are preloaded. So all their thought process is based off of memories that don't actually exist. Yes. So do you think that could be why they don't consider them humans? Pause for one second, just so I can get everybody caught up. So in the, in the Nexus 6 model, so Roy Batty and the other ones that escaped, they didn't have the memory implants. It's the Nexus 7 model, Rachel, who, who does. And uh, when you're talking about experiences, it sounds like maybe, is that related to... Um, so, memories of these experiences or so right so so one of the things that you can say is that it's true that Rachel has all these memories from her childhood but also she, one and, and these are before she exists right like right. Uh, she she exists at time t and before time t all these memories are implanted and she thinks that she is part of those memories right but ultimately she starts having memories the minute she starts existing right so so she remembers kissing decker or, you right. know or she remembers uh, killing someone to save him right so so Spoiler these, alert right <laughs> <laughs> so so all these are her memories right so memories uh 
are not necessarily a question about consciousness. It's uh, more a question about how uh, memory or consciousness relates to identity. Like, what makes me me over time? So when I was two years old, my memories were very different. And my uh, body was very different. My thought process was very different. My beliefs were very different, right? And, and that happens throughout your lifetime. You change radically. Right. From your physical characteristics to your mental characteristics, right? Presumably you, want, you grow mentally as much as you grow physically throughout the, uh, your life. And so then the question becomes, um, what, if, given that I change so radically from time to time to time, what makes me me? Why am I not a different person every other minute or every year or every 10 years? Right. And so, uh, so these issues about memory are more closely related to identity uh, rather than the ability to be conscious or the, the ability to uh, be you. Um, and, so, and it was John Locke that talked about how the memories give a person a continuity of... of, of Identity, right? Um, in, in the movie, T- Tyrell talks about. He seems to suggest that memories are necessary to give them. A, I think he says a cushion of some kind for their emotional experiences, as if having, I guess, a bank of a, of a memories to draw on helps inform how to process emotions. Maybe in a way that would keep them from acting how Roy and the others act, which is violent ultimately um, to serve their own ends. Um, is that consistent with what? Um, Locke would think about uh, um, the importance of memories? Uh, he thought of the importance of memories. There, there's some new research now, actually, about memories, but uh, Locke didn't really have a lot of information, so he was going by, you know, you sit in your couch. We call it uh, armchair philosophy. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. So you sit in your couch and you try to make sense of what you know and how the everything works. And so he's thinking, look, you know, uh, I mean... Um, uh, what he, the famous example that he gives is the example of uh, the swap between the cobbler and the prince. Hmm. So he imagines a situation where uh, the cobbler, uh, there are two kids. One is lives in a palace and he's the prince and another kid who's a cobbler and lives in horrific conditions. And one day they wake up and their consciousness, their memories have swapped. And so the prince is now uh, the cobbler, and he's looking at his environment, and he's confused about where he is. Uh, whereas the uh, cobbler, on the other hand, he's in a palace and, you know, lots of luxury and so on. He's too confused about where he is and who he is, and he doesn't know what's going on. And so the, the point of this uh, experiment, thought experiment for Locke, was to say that, you know, these memories, and there are a lot of other movies um, more recently, and I think also in the 80s that explored this kind of notion, that uh, these memories uh, could be implanted in a different substance, physical substance, so another body, for example. and But you'd still be you, because right. that's what makes you you, the uh, combination of all these memories that you have. Right. So uh, he wasn't too concerned about the emotions that result from those memories, although more recently... Uh, there have been cases where people, um, uh, it's, there's a condition that's called the imposter uh, uh, condition, where people uh, uh, think that the person that, let's say their mother, is no longer their mother, but mm. their body has been taken over or they've been swapped with an imposter. Right. And so, so they think this person is no longer the person they knew. Like imagine waking up one day and thinking, you know, my spouse is right. not my spouse. Someone swapped them, right? And so what they found out is that when they have conversations on the phone, like they have the, the person who suffers from this talking to their mother, let's say the mother is the imposter, uh, talking to the mother on the phone, and they'll say, this is my mother. I know this is my mother. But when the mother walks into the room, hmm. uh, the person says, this is not my mother. This is the imposter. And they've pinned it to the, one of the explanations for this is that uh, they've lost the emotional ability to connect to the person. And so even though everything about them looks the same, they no longer feel like that's their mother. Wow. And so they hmm. feel that there's something foreign about this person. That's Even though nothing changed to the person, it's still their mother. So essentially what you're suggesting is auditory experience is, however they process it, it's fine. 
it's something about the visual that there creates this disconnect between. Yeah, I guess I guess it has to do with the feelings, and this is uh, the the how you experience feelings, right? In, in the movies, very pronounced as well. Um, I guess it has to do with the idea that um, uh, when you're with someone that you know mm. uh, or you love you have a certain experience with them, uh, maybe ineffable, maybe you can't even explain what the experience is like. But once that goes out, out, you, you don't no longer have these emotions that you have mm. associated with them, then it, they feel like a stranger, right? right? It's as if they're swept right. with someone, wow. right? And this happened with pets as well. You know, this is not my dog. This <laughs> oh, is an wow. imposter, you know, like a fake dog. <laughs> Uh, not fake, but an imposter, yes. dog, still a real dog. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. it was interesting in the movie that, um, and I'm curious what if this would work for you, right, too. Um, Rachel's told, you know, Deckard says, he proves to her that her memories are not real by knowing what they are. Right. And that's enough for her to say, oh, well, I guess I'm a replicant. Um, where it's Also, seen, she doesn't pass the test, remember. That's, well, yes. So he knows she's a replicant. She doesn't know how she did on the test. But I guess for her to be convinced, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what we talked about so far with regard to Descartes and Locke. This idea that I don't imagine someone could approach me now, which could happen, and say, here's your memories. I've got them in the file here. I don't think my first thought would be, well, I guess I'm not a human or, you know. Right. Would that that be enough to convince you? (laughs) (laughs) I would just, uh, I would have your dad call you and confirm it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's a replicate. I mean, just, uh, I, I think, I, I mean, you know, you have to do a lot of things in a movie very quickly, yes, right? of course. So, that's so maybe a long time has passed. <laughs> so, but I think one of the interesting things that uh, also happens is that Deckard says um, to, when he talks to the CEO of the Tyrell Corporation, he says, um, uh, how can she not know? Right. Right. And, and it takes him over an hour to do the test. And, and if you are familiar with the Turing uh, uh, tests literature. The idea is that if in an hour the um, computer, the machine uh, makes you think that it's a human, it thinks, right? Yeah. So so I think there's some significance, uh, at least in the part of the screenwriter, uh, in terms of the duration, that Rachel is so good that it takes Deckard more than an hour to figure it out, right. that she's not, right? And so, but... Um, uh, the question is, how do I know that I'm not, right. uh, uh, that I'm a replicant or I'm not a human, right? And uh, that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, from, and, and that's part of the important sort of quality of consciousness. Like, um, I, consciousness has to do with the subjectivity, right? It's like I'm experiencing the world from my own perspective, Right. Right. And so it would be bizarre if you told me I'm not here right now because it fe- everything that happens, it feels like it's happening and I'm experienced, you know, I see colors, I see, you know, people, um, you know, I'm hearing things and so on. So it's, it's a more difficult question. So that's, I think, why um, uh, philosophers have now started talking about the experiences rather than the emotions that you have or the ability to think because the ability to think obviously the replicants can think really well. They have rationality and all of that. And the ability to exhibit emotions, clearly the replicants, at least the Nexus 7 ones, right. the, the newest ones, have that ability, and that's why they need to be killed, right? right? So even though they're not given that ability, presumably they have the ability to get it. And in fact, it is exhibited at the end where uh, Roy, the, the replicant, saves Deckard, right? right? He could have just left, let him die, but he waits for him to fall, start falling, to show him what fear feels like, yes. right? And then he grabs him and saves him, right? And then when he dies, he knows that he's going to die. When he dies, he says, you know, makes a mention to memories that he has. But he also makes a mention to experiences that he has. He says, you know, nobody wow. else would see right. these things that I've seen, right, that I've experienced, mm-hmm. And then as he dies, the dove flies. And, and that, to me, I think where, whether it was intentional or non-intentional, and I think it was not intentional on the part of the director because Ridley Scott said that was improvised and he loved it once he saw it. They but just it happen to have a dove lying around? No, I think the actor... The, the <laughs> actor Howard brought one. Yeah, yeah so, so he, he came from theater, and so he, I mm. think he did a lot of homework. Mm. And I think the way he was directed, it was a little weird because when he's chasing uh, Deckard, 
it, it comes off as creepy, like the whole scene. That's actually my favorite part of the entire movie is when he just goes like like a werewolf kind of almost. Yeah, howling and everything. Yeah, it's just chasing him around that house. Right, but it's like, if you think about it from the context of the movie, like what is that supposed to show, right? Well, mm, it's, I have some thoughts too, but I think you're getting at it. And, and you know, and um, what I mentioned I, I thought this last thought about Heidegger to keep this in the philosophical philosophy tent was that um, uh, I think that what you're hitting upon about this idea that he waits till he falls and etc. So it is. It seems to me that Roy makes a choice maybe early on that he's going to give this gift to Deckard, and I wonder if even um, he. Well, okay, what De- whether Deckard's a human or replicant maybe is irrelevant at this point, but it seems that he makes this choice that he's going to give him this gift. And I bring up Heidegger because Heidegger, as I understand it, another philosopher suggested that um, we're not truly free to be our authentic. And maybe I'm getting this wrong, and I know this might not be in your wheelhouse necessarily, Heidegger, that we're not true, truly free to be authentic. Uh, and be ourselves until we face death in a certain way that we may have anxiety of it, but we come to terms with it. And some of that involves fear and anxiety and then working through it. And we can get easily stuck in just living the same lives every day because we're just sort of keeping this fear of death at bay and giving our life some kind of meaning, at least to, you know, again, sort of, you know, stave off that, you know, anxiety. But by confronting it, we're then free. And it seems to me like Roy, even turning into the wolf, it's it's this idea that I'm going to scare him the maximum amount. I'm going to howl. I'm going to poke through walls. I'm going to, you know, punch through, you know, ceilings or whatever. Building up to this last moment, I think, he that, knows that he's going to die. That interpretation makes sense to me yeah. now, because otherwise it just seems... Uh, it seems creepy and it doesn't really yeah. connect to the rest of the theme. But yeah, if if it's about, right, it's if it's about death. And in fact, you know, it's it's true. Like he lets him slip, right? Yeah. He grabs him after he thinks he's dying, right? Uh, this is it for him. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that would be, uh, uh, it, it, make, it would be a good interpretation of the whole sequence there, especially because right after that, he decides to leave with Rachel, right? Right. Which is not necessarily something he would do prior, right? We see him as an isolated human being. He right. is, a, um, you know, doesn't have any connections to the world, right? He seems to be misanthropic by any, uh, you know, measure. And along those lines, Rachel also, who now knows because she's a replicant, she may have a short shelf life, even though she doesn't know what it is. And we could say that of all humans, but seems to have now gone through that sort of, again, facing death and then makes a choice to be at the apartment waiting for him, presumably to to run off too. Uh So they both, yeah, come to that decision maybe in the same way. Yeah, uh, intellectually, definitely death seems to do that. And, and I think people who experience, who experience uh, near-death experiences have this sort of renewed sure. uh, commitment to life and they make decisions that they wouldn't have made otherwise because fear presumably is what keeps us all back. Um, so, I mean, it's a really strong emotion. I think it's interesting here because they're trying to measure empathy. Right. But in fact, they should be maybe they should be measuring fear <laughs> and the ability to experience the fear of death, right? Right. So, yeah. because if you're a machine, it's not like uh, presumably you wouldn't care as much. Uh, yeah, and, and also it makes me think that you know maybe we were talking about this before the show, um, but that this void conf test, I think many humans in our society, our polarized society today, would would fail the test if the idea is being empathetic. It does seem like a good... Rage always gives me this certain look when I'm getting political, but it does seem like a great number of the political challenges we have today are a result of folks not being able to empathize with another group and therefore say, why do I want to do this when it doesn't benefit me directly? Right. You know, so, yeah, I agree with you. And and I don't think that's accidental. I mean, uh, in in the movie, obviously, and and that's why I started with that earlier. I I don't know if you were recording then or if it was our conversation, but the idea there was that um, you are supposed to uh, distinguish humans from replicants by uh, uh, determining whether one has uh, the ability to empathize and the other does, and that's why the uh, turtle in the desert is upside down. Would you turn it, right? Um, and, but the world that you experience is the result of 
completely unempathetic humanity because mm. it's a post-apocalyptic world, right? We could prevent this. We are right now wow. in the same right. sort of place where we could do things to prevent uh, a lot of tragedy, but we're just walking around pretending not, nothing is happening, right? Eventually things will happen, right? right. <laughs> Whether mm. we like them or not. So, so, uh, so there's lack of empathy there, the very emotion that they're trying to measure to, to basically attach it to the humanity, and uh, everyone, every interaction in the movie is like that. It's completely unempathetic. Like Deckard uh, doesn't have any friends. The only mm-hmm. uh, person he loves is a replicant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, right. uh, you know, the police force. Uh, everybody's corrupt, right? We we see that. Uh, the people in the streets, they'll sell you anything for a certain amount of money. And they don't seem to react when he shoots what looks like a human right. in the middle right. of the street. They just gather around and sort of looking at her. <laughs> right. And so, and the assumption there is, and, and that's why Rachel asks him, you know, how, do, how can you be sure you haven't killed a human, right? right? If they're such, so indistinguishable from replicants. And He's a little puzzled. I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, he doesn't. He's been told in some cases. I mean, we see that he's doing the test himself. So he has some mm. first-person evidence that the person he's, hide, he, he's chasing. But he hasn't done the tests for the other replicants he killed, all four of them, Roy and Pris. He, he hasn't tested them. He right. just kills no, he them. Just, and, yeah. and the woman on the street. He's got their photos or right? something. Right. Yeah. He, he's told these are replicants, right? I mean... The corporation can wow. manufacture wow. that information. Right? That's a whole other movie. <laughs> right? That actually is a movie that's coming out that's kind of like that. A sequel yeah. or prequel or something. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's it was interesting to me when I watched the movie twice over that, you know, empathy is the primary emotion. And humans lack empathy throughout the entire movie. Uh, and... Um, Whereas um, the replicants are the ones that seem to exhibit the type of empathy right. uh, that we claim to have, right? I want to make sure I get to one last question to you. Deckard, replicant or human? I, I, I don't have a doubt that he is human. Oh, yeah, human? I, yeah, I, 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 I think he, he's definitely uh, human. And I think the... First of all, when Ridley Scott was asked initially, he said no, and then fans started talking more and more. And then years right. later, he said, oh, okay, maybe, yes, okay. So, so I don't think he thought about it in that way. But if you look at the movie and every scene in the movie, there's nothing about him. Now are we talking director's cut? or uh, b- Both of them, yeah. If you mm. look at both of them, uh, I didn't see any difference in terms of his behavior. I'm going to disagree with you about the one. The, yeah? I mean, the one, okay. one main thing, right, is, that, is the unicorn. Right, so the idea that we see him daydreaming about a unicorn in a forest, and that Edward James Almos's character, who's been making origami animals right. and creatures throughout the thing, leaves a unicorn at his apartment, and Deckard sees that, and it seems like he knows. Oh, he! The uh, only okay. way he could know that I was thinking about a unicorn is if he had access to my implanted memories in the way that I have access to Rachel's. Oh, I see. I didn't read it that way. I thought that. Uh, the unicorn represented because if you see uh, it to me the, this origami represented Deckard's behavior hmm. so when he's in the I'm not sure I think this is in the uncut version uh, the, the, the with the voiceover when he's in the police station yes and uh, the, he makes uh, uh, w- the first origami where he sees a chicken right. when he says, you know, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm done right. with this, right? right. So, so he's acting too. like a chicken, right? <laughs> yes. And so he's afraid or whatever. And then uh, when we see the unicorn at the end, uh, he's leaving to live a life with Rachel, yep. uh, uh, who, who we know is a replicant, right? right? I interpreted that idea of the unicorn as, you know, you have this... Uh, quixotic idea that you're going to live a great life with mm. Rachel, but she's a replicant. So that's how I read that. But I think I mean, to, your, to your earlier point that only replica- replicants seem to be the characters that show empathy in the movie and not the humans. I think that also goes in the Deckard is probably Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and something I never caught in the movie before till I rewatched it recently to talk with you was that at the end, when Roy does his speech about, you know, what are going to happen with... It seems like he's talking about memories, but I like the way you explained it. We really, maybe he's talking about these experiences. They'll be lost like so many tears in the rain. And for the first time I caught, it seems like Deckard is crying in the rain. Right, yeah. And I thought, again... This idea that he is feeling more for these replicants than any of the humans, you know, so again, maybe. Oh, so I see. So you're saying maybe that's because he too 
is a replicant. Yeah. He just doesn't know it. And, yes. I mean, I think we've given you a, a philosophical yeah. Yeah. question <laughs> that can't be answered among the many others that you teach about. Yes. And uh, with that, a lot I of will, uncertainty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. With that, I will thank you for your time. This was awesome. You're uh, very welcome. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> thank you. So, Ray, <laughs> we got to videotape this now because you are great at this, but. Seeing the wheels turn, I wish other people could see the wheels spinning. <laughs> and I don't know if this is giving too much away, the fact that, you know, we try to have a premise for the show, but how it ends, we don't know. I yes. don't know. I don't know. I don't know until I open and my mouth have... up at the end of the show, because I've listened intently to yes. everything we've said. Right. And I have calculated it together like a mm-hmm. giant supercomputer. And then I'm just going to spit out the results like that little tape that comes yeah. up. Yeah, that, so. that's what I'm picturing. Like that scene in Willy Wonka, the 1971 Willy Wonka, where mm-hmm. the guy's working with the supercomputer, he punches a bunch of things and then a little piece of paper spits out and he reads it. Yes. Are you ready for this one? <laughs> this might, I think this might be my favorite one I've ever oh, said. Okay, yes. Are you ready for this one? We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that I think <laughs> 1980s pop culture was the best. Therefore, I am pretty sure you would agree. Oh, my goodness. You never cease to amaze me how you do this. That's fantastic. And if you don't know why he said that, you fast-forwarded to the professor's interview, and you need to go back and listen to that and get educated. Right? Yep. All right. We'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.